Thank you, Jamie. Appreciate that. By the way, for those, some of you may not know, that's my daughter. That's my little girl. It's good to hear her sweet little voice reading God's Word. All right, hey, so we're working our way uh, through the book of Ephesians, and we've said all along that Ephesians has two major sections. There's six chapters in the book of Ephesians. The first three chapters tell us how to rest in Christ, how to abide in Christ, how to be aware of all the incredible things that God has done for us and how he has set us up for success, for life in this world. And then the last three chapters, chapters 4 through 6, uh, are the, the chapter 4, verse 1 is the hinge verse of the whole, uh, the whole book. It says, therefore, walk worthy of the calling that you've received. So then we're told in the next three chapters how we're to live out, just practically speaking, all these amazing truths that we've unpacked in Ephesians 1 through 3. Now, I've said before that if you try to live out Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, without an understanding of Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, it's just going to result in failure and futility. So it's so important that we be dialed in to what Jesus has done for us here. Now, in chapter 1 of the book of Ephesians, we started there a couple weeks ago, right? We're told that, the, that every member of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, have all been involved in our salvation, that we have been chosen, we've been adopted as sons and daughters, we've been forgiven by the Son, we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 15, Paul prays a prayer for God's people, for the church then and for the church now. And here's the effort of his prayer. He says this, he prays that followers of Jesus would have hearts that are enlightened so that they would know more intimacy with Christ. That's what he's praying for, that you and I would know Christ better and that we would live more closely with him and more intimately with him. And Paul, Paul culminates that prayer by pointing to Jesus' supreme authority over everything, remembering, calling us to remember that Jesus has been uh, placed far above all rule and power and dominion. So you get to that and you go, well, man, how do you top that? I mean, how do you add to that? Well, here's how. In chapter 2, he's going to say, first of all, I want to remind you who you used to be. Because if you will remember who you used to be, you will worship God for who and what he's made you. But, but first, you've got to start there. You've got to start there. It might be said this way, remembering where I was will bring worship to where I am. Now, before I dive in, I want to walk you through a little story, great story that's found in Luke 7 that sets up Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And so uh, this, in Luke 7, there's a religious leader that invites Jesus to his house for dinner. And we're told that there was a woman in that town who had lived a very sinful life. We don't know what the sin was. We just, Jesus later even says she has many sins so, you know, not the best person. And this woman hears that Jesus is in town and at this house. So she goes there, and she goes there with the only thing of value that she has, which is an expensive bottle of perfume. And she sees Jesus, and she, when she sees Jesus, she's just undone. And she just begins to weep. I mean, at the recognition of 
uh, his majesty and the greatness of her sin. And so she falls at his feet. Now, this is awkward because remember, he, Jesus is at a dinner party. Uh, there, there are people around the table, including this Pharisee who's hosting the party. And this woman is there weeping and wailing and crying and kneeling at Jesus' feet. And as she's crying, she's doing for Jesus what this religious leader should have done. See, in that day, if you were a guest and you came to dinner, it was just common courtesy for the, 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 get, the uh, owner of the banquet or the house to wash your feet. Roads were dusty. It was uncomfortable. They were hot. Well, this religious leader didn't do that. So she begins to do with her tears what this religious leader failed to do. And she doesn't have a towel to wipe it with. So she gets down and she begins to take her hair and she begins to wipe Jesus' feet with her tears and with her hair. And then when she's done with that, she takes this expensive bottle of perfume and finishes the job by pouring that out at the feet of Jesus. And then we pick up, we pick up the rest of the story here. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Now, let's stop there because we've said before, right, it was never a good idea to have a, an impure thought in the Gospels when you were with Jesus. In other words, Jesus always seemed to know what people were thinking, what they needed to hear, and so then he would say that. So that's true here. Jesus knows what this Pharisee is thinking, so he says to him, Simon, I have something to tell you. So lock and low, get ready, buckle up. Tell me, teacher, he said. So Jesus tells him a story, and this is a story that relates directly to Ephesians chapter 2, what we're about to look at today. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. And then Jesus begins to contrast how he was welcomed into Simon's house with how this woman had treated him. And he points out how rudely Simon had acted to him. You know, just he'd ignored all the normal stuff that you would do for a guest in that day. Just a callous and uncaring response to Jesus. And then he drops the bombshell. He says to everybody in the room as he's looking at this woman, Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves very, very little. And one of the things that we're meant to understand from this story is that this religious leader didn't love Jesus. And the reason he loved Jesus just a little was that he didn't think he needed Jesus. In his mind, he was good enough on his own. His works would be the thing that made him acceptable to God. But this woman, the woman in this story, she knew that she was hopeless and helpless without Jesus apart from him. She knew deep down into her bones he was her only hope. 
And so uh, she was more desperate for Jesus than anybody in the room because she recognized she had a greater need for Jesus. And therefore, because she had been forgiven much, she was going to love much. Now listen, if you'll track with me in the next few minutes, you're going to walk out of this room this morning with a greater love for Jesus, and I'll tell you why, because you're going to recognize that none of us in this room have been forgiven for just a little. Every one of us in this room, every one of us have been forgiven much, and we're going to see that very, very clearly So in order to do that, right, one of the things you have to do is you have to look back and you have to ask the question, well, who was I before I knew Jesus? And here's what Paul says about that. Uh, So these first three verses are tough. But I want you to track with me because if you'll track with me, they're going to make you appreciate the next six verses a lot, lot more. Um, And so here's what Paul says. He says, Yeah, as for you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So here's what Paul is saying, the observation he's making about every one of us. He's saying, look, our sin made every one of us spiritually dead. Now, we all know what a no trespassing sign means. What does it mean to be dead in my trespassing and sins? Well, If you see a no trespassing sign, you know what that means. It means don't go past this point, right? You're not wanted here. You're not welcome here. And every one of us in this room have gone past where our Heavenly Father has asked us to go. That's called sin. In other words, and furthermore, we've not gone to the places where He's asked us to go. We've fallen short of His glory and His righteousness. Furthermore, we've all trespassed into God's territory and tried to make it life about us. Our rules, our views, our thoughts, our intellect, our sense of control, our well-being, our needs, our lives. And you need to hear me say this morning that the essence of sin is self-centeredness. At the very heart of sinfulness is just a focus on self. And it gets worse. Not only does he say that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but he also says that we were in which we used to walk, but he also says that we were following the ways of this world. Now, what does that mean? Well, that means that we were just doing what came naturally to our minds and our bodies. It means that we lived for pleasure. It means that we were all about instant gratification. It means that our primary goal was happiness and that we would do anything, including sinful things, bad things, or wrong things, in order to be happy. It means that... um, yeah, and then he, so, and that we'll do anything to get that happiness. And then it gets even worse. He tells us who or what is behind all of that. Who or what is behind when people just simply, naively, uh, and instantly follow the ways of this world. He tells them, he says this, he says that, that we followed the prince of the power of the air. Now, this is code 
for our enemy. This is code for Satan. This is code for the devil. And I'll just spend a minute showing you that. So, for example, in 1 John 5, 19, John makes the observation. He says, hey, the whole world is under the control of the evil one. And some of us, we look around at what's happening in the world today, right? We look around at what's happening with Russia and the Ukraine. We look around at the natural disasters, and we can kind of resonate with that. Yeah, I can kind of see that. I mean, when I look at, at, out at a world gone mad, I can clearly see that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. I mean, in a world filled with uncertainty and pandemics and theft and murder and adultery and all the evil that exists in the world, yeah, Brat Pastor, I get it. I can see how the whole world is controlled by the evil one. And then in another book, Paul, the same man that wrote the book of Ephesians, writing to the church at Ephesus, he's writing to the church at Corinth, and he calls Satan the God of this age. The God of this age. And so what he's saying here in Ephesians is that, um, you know, as he's talking about uh, this prince of the power of the air, this spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, he is saying something very strong and very counterintuitive. And I want to tease this out. He is saying something that we aren't often aware of, and that is if we are following the ways of this world, then we are following the ruler of this world. And None of us really like to admit that, right? He's saying, listen, by default, that anyone who isn't a follower of Jesus is a follower of the prince of the power of the air. Now, they may not be aware of that. They may not be doing that intentionally. However, they're just doing that by default, that's just what people do who follow the ways of this world. So, and here's the crazy part. If I asked you, like let's say you and I were having a conversation and I said to you, hey, have you ever been a follower of Satan? What would you say? You'd go, of course not. I mean, I've never followed Satan a day in my life. Well, Paul says, oh yes, you were. Before you knew Jesus, you were a follower of the prince of the power of the air. You're either a follower of Jesus or you're a follower of the enemy, and there is no in-between. Now, if you're here in the room this morning and you would not out yourself yet as a follower of Jesus, I want to ask you to wrestle with something that's really, really awkward and uncomfortable. And that is this, according to Paul, according to God's word, this isn't describing your past. This is describing your present. Not that you intended it, not that you meant for it to happen. It's just the way things work by default when people aren't actually following Jesus. And so now that there's plenty of... Um, you know, wait in the room, I want to begin to unpack. Well, actually, it even gets worse. <laughs> You're like, how can it get worse? It's pretty bad already, right? Well, so to recap, Paul says, look, 
You look back at who we used to be, every one of us in this room. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We followed the ways of this world. We followed the prince of this world. And then he he adds one last descriptor to who we used to be. He says, we were all by nature objects or children of God's wrath. Now, wrath is God's justice poured out on something. In other words, sin must be met with the righteous anger of God. Now, sometimes when people hear a statement like this or an observation like this, they ask a question. I think it's a good question. They say, well, how could a loving God be a wrathful God? I mean, how, how could God be angry and loving at the same time? Well, let me ask you a question. When someone sins against or hurts someone that you love, what is your response to that? When someone that you really, really care about gets hurt, what rises up in you? See, I would argue that God's love demands his wrath, that God's wrath would never exist if it wasn't fueled by his love. Because here's the truth. Sin hurts people. It always hurts people. And God gets angry when people get hurt. His love demands a response. It demands wrath. Friends, sin is not some impotent force. It is the most destructive force on our planet. And if you want a picture of it, just open the news and read about the Russian invasion of Ukraine. That's sin. That is sin in action. It's devastating. It is the biggest problem in our world. But listen, then verse 4. The whole, the whole tenor change. I mean, listen, verse 4 is a game changer. I mean, it changes everything. In the middle of that predicament, in the middle of our helplessness, right? Because dead people can't do anything to help themselves. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. We followed the ways of this world. In the middle of all that, God did something we could have never done for ourselves. It says, but God God acted. God moved. He did something when we couldn't do anything for ourselves. Oh, and by the way, let me just one more thing here. You know, some of us, all of us have a different story when it comes to our walks with Jesus. I didn't become a follower of Jesus until I was 20. So for me, there was a lot of time where I knew there was kind of a before and an after. And Jesus transformed my life. But there are some of you maybe who grew up in the faith. And if I were to ask you, hey, tell me when you became a Christian. You know what you'd say? You'd say something like, well, I've always been a Christian. Well, Paul says, oh, no, you haven't. Oh, no, you haven't. I mean, I know what you mean. You mean that you grew up in a Christian home. You mean that you had Christian parents. But even in the face of growing up in a Christian home with Christian parents, these things were still true about you until you said yes to Jesus. So the next time somebody asks you, well, when did you become a Christian? 
I mean, that, that question demands a more thoughtful response than, well, I've always been a Christian. Because Paul says, no, that is not who you used to be before you, you became a follower of Jesus. And then we read those words, but God, you know, God moved not to punish us, not to pour his wrath out on us, but instead to show us his grace, mercy, and kindness. And it's spelled out so amazingly. In other words, he acted when we were helpless. He acted when we were hopeless. He acted when we were completely helpless to do anything for ourselves. But why? Why would God act? We're told right here, but God being rich in mercy. That's the why. Why did God act? He acted because of who he is. He acted because he's merciful. Now, mercy holds back the wrath that you and I deserve. So instead of being objects of wrath, we become objects of mercy. We become children of mercy. Um, yeah, so he acted because of his mercy, because of you know just who and what he is. And what did he do exactly? We're told in the next phrase, he made us alive together with Christ. Listen, I said this last week, Michael said this last week, I'll say it again this week. God did not come to make bad people good. God come to make dead people live spiritually. And there's a big difference. And there is nothing that dead people can do for themselves. Only God can do that. In fact, three times in the Gospels, Jesus raises someone from the dead. And every time, that's meant to be a precursor of what Jesus is going to do for every single believer. I mean, he defeated death. He overcame death so that you and I would never have to die. And by die, I mean be spiritually separated from God. So uh, we each become like a trophy of God's mercy, and it gets better. He says that we're each saved by grace through faith and not by works, not by deeds, not by a sense of our own goodness or moral superiority. So here's what he's saying. He's saying, look, there aren't enough good deeds in the world to bridge the gap, the moral gap, the righteousness gap that exists between you and a holy God. It's just too big. People, there's no way that people can bridge that gap through self-effort or self-discipline. You can't do it. And listen, the reality is if you were to ask most of your friends and family members how it is that people get to heaven... This is exactly what they believe. This is exactly what they're going to say. Well, you know, if you do enough good things, then you go to heaven when you die. No, friends, there are no good people in heaven. There are only forgiven people in heaven. And that's going to become more clear as we continue to walk our way through this. You know, and Paul says, no, that is, that is simply untrue. Uh, and he reminds us, you know, it, the gap's just too big. So think of it this way, just a practical illustration. Let's say we all joined the Y, and we all started swimming. And let's say that every one of us in the room became expert swimmers. Now, my knee's a little bummed right now, so I have to sit out practice, so I don't become an expert swimmer. 
but all of you do. And then we, we all caravan to the Atlantic, and the goal is we say, all right, we're all going to swim across the Atlantic Ocean together. You're all expert swimmers. You're way better swimmers than me because I've got a bum knee. Uh, okay, so I'm going to drown first, right? But how far out into the Atlantic Ocean do you think you're going to make it before you go under? See, that gap is simply too big to be bridged by self-effort. And the Bible would say that spiritually, in the same way, the moral gap that exists between you and God is far too big for you to throw a few measly little good works God's way. That meant Jesus had to do something incredible on your behalf and for you. In other words, some of you are here and you're like that religious leader in the story I told at the beginning. You think that Jesus just came to give you a little push into heaven. You're going to do most of the work, but Jesus is just kind of going to kind of be your, uh, you know, your wingman, right? And kind of just push you into heaven. That is not true. And what Paul is trying to make very clear here is that Jesus is not partially responsible for your salvation. He's completely responsible for your salvation. You were dead. You were helpless. You were hopeless. He acted. He moved. He was merciful. He was kind. He was gracious when you and I were not. And This is just a big deal. And I want you to note something else about this whole not by works thing. I want you to think about the futility and the frustration of approaching God that way. So let's say that you define goodness as helping little old ladies across the street. So, so you, so you, you, and you keep a log. Okay, today I've helped 999 little old ladies cross the street. Well, how do you know you don't have to help 1,000? How do you know you don't have to help, ha- help 1,500? I mean, how can you possibly ever know when you've done enough to be accepted by God? The reality is you can't. And friends, if you run on that treadmill very long, it will wear you out. It will frustrate you, and you will crumple under the weight of that. And the good news this morning is that you and I don't have to live that way. Jesus came to make us acceptable to God. Jesus came to do those good works on our behalf and for us so that we could approach God fully and confidently because of him. And it gets even better. I mean, uh, he goes on to say this, because of his grace, he didn't stop there. He didn't stop with saving us. He tells us as well that we've been seated together with him in the heavenly realms. Now, last week, we looked at a prayer that Paul prayed, and one of the observations he made is he said, look, if you want to know, like he talked about God's power, which he said was incomparable. He said it was unsurpassing. So the question was, how do you compare something that's incomparable? How do you measure something that's immeasurable when you're talking about God's power? And Paul says, it's easy. You just look at where Jesus is seated. 
He's seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly realms. And here we're told that not only is Jesus seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly realms, but that if we're in him, we have a seat there as well. And this, friends, is huge. This is an incredible thing. It means that there, there's a sense in which we have Christ's authority, that Christ has given each and every single one of us a crown. Now, uh, how many of you in the room have ever played checkers? So maybe you've noticed this, maybe you haven't, but um, every single checker on a checkerboard has the insignia of a crown. And what that means is every, every checker, every piece on this board is meant to become a king. Every single one. They're all meant for royalty, but are all of them going to experience that? No, what has to happen, right? You, you go through all the obstacles of the game. You survive all the hardships of the game. No, they successfully get to the other side, and then they're crowned a king, right? And only then can that piece do things that other pieces could never dream of doing. Now, when you became a follower of Jesus... Jesus gave you a crown. You are destined for royalty. But just like in the game of checkers, not all of us are going to live are going to know that destiny in this life and I'll tell you exactly why. Just like in checker, checkers how there's obstacles and there's hardships in this life, you know, there's obstacles and there's hardships, right? So um, basically, you know, it, it, works, it looks like this. I mean, life's going to get in the way of you realizing this truth, learning how to live this truth out. Because you're just, in the hardship of life, you're just going to get distracted. Hardship is going to spring up and it's going to result in bitterness for some of you. And that bitterness is going to stop that journey right in its tracks. Now, I'm not saying that down the line you won't still get your crown. I'm just saying that you won't know the joy of living that out in everyday life right here, right now on planet Earth. Because you are royalty here now, but you have to live up to that. You have to walk worthy of that calling. And the reality is, there's just some of you, maybe even right now, are in just a season of indifference. And that indifference is taking a toll on you. So interestingly enough, um, there's a pastor right now that does a podcast. His name's Kerry Newhoff. <clears throat> and Pastor Newhoff uh, is talking about the pandemic, and even though numbers of the pandemic have declined rapidly, I mean, it's, uh, you know, far, far off its peak. He, the observation he made is that a lot of people still aren't coming back to church. And so he, he kind of gets into the why of that, why he thinks those people aren't back. And his contention is this, he says, it's not fear that's keeping those people at home. I think for most people, it's indifference. I mean, just over the course of the pandemic, they've just gotten comfortable. And so it just feels uncomfortable to come back. It just doesn't feel important enough to them 
to be in the room. So if you're watching from home, I'd be the first to acknowledge there are some good reasons to watch from home. But I'd have to ask you, you know, why are you at home? Will you sift your heart and ask the hard question, okay, what am I doing in my living room instead of in the room? And again, if you sift your heart and it's a good answer, a good response, awesome, more power to you. That's why we're going to continue to stream online. That's why we're going to continue to do that. But not all of us who are at home are going to get that answer. We're going to sift our heart and we're going to go, man, you know what? Maybe some indifference has crept in there. Maybe I've gotten a little too comfortable and it's time, you know, for me to jump back in, right? So, Uh, I need to ask all of us, whether you're in the room or out of the room, are you focused on, are you dialed into your relationship with Jesus? Because it's possible to be at home in your living room and not be dialed into Jesus. And it's also possible to be sitting here in this room and not be dialed into Jesus. But it's only by being dialed in that you grow into the royalty that Jesus says that you are. So just like in the, ch- in the game of checkers, don't let obstacles, don't let hardship get in the way of being the royalty that God says that you are. Now, and then we're told why God has done all of these things for us. And we're told, told it this way, which it, this is all expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Now listen, before your heavenly Father is anything else, he is kind. In fact, <clears throat> to be kind to someone is to be useful to them. To be kind to someone is to be beneficial to them, and our God is kind. In fact, we're told by the same author that wrote the book of Ephesians that it's God's kindness that leads us to a change of mind about who he is and a change of mind about our sin, that it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. This means that when people realize how kind God really is, they run to him. They drop everything else and they run his way because the kindness you find in him, you don't find in this world. They seek him out because of his kindness. And then in verse 8, we kind of get a summary statement where he's just summarizing everything he said in the last few verses. And this statement reads this way. It's by grace you are saved through faith. In other words, just through taking God at his word, through saying yes to God as your forgiver and your leader. And then he goes on to say, but this isn't from yourselves. This is a gift of God. In other words, you can't earn your salvation. You can't work for it. You can't think you deserve it. You can't think that you've done enough to get it. You have to recognize that it's all on Jesus. It's a gift. It's not a wage. So that no one can boast. Listen, friends, Heaven is not going to be a place where we're, all, where we're all jacked up about all the things that we did to get us there. No, you know what heaven's going to be? It's going to be a place where we're jacked up about a Savior who did the work that got us there. 
None of us have any right to boast or brag. None of us will be able to brag about what we've done, but only about what he has done. And then notice, too, that while we aren't saved by works, notice in verse 10 that we are saved for good works. That we don't rely on good works to earn our salvation, but that once we get our salvation, we lean into good works because we've been saved, because we're new, we've been made new, we're new men and new women. And here's how Paul says it in verse 10, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good, good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, the word workmanship is a word that um, is sometimes used of a poem, Sometimes it's a word in the Greek language that's used of a work of art or a sculpture. And this is why some versions translate this word, we are God's masterpiece. We're God's work of art. Now, a few years back, we did an entire series on this one verse, and we called it masterpiece off of this word. And one of the things that we noted in that series is that some of the greatest masterpieces in all of the world are actually something called commissioned art. Now, commissioned art is something that's done, created, not for the benefit of the artist. It's done for the benefit of someone else. It's meant to inspire others. It's meant to bring value to others, not to the person who created it. And I want to show you just one piece of commissioned art. So the Statue of Liberty is made from copper. It was a gift from the people of France to the people of the United States. It was designed by the French sculptor Bartholdi, and its metal framework was actually built, you may recognize this name, by a man by the name of Gustave Eiffel. So the same man that designed and built the Eiffel Tower. And uh, this piece of commissioned art has greeted hundreds of thousands of people as they fled their country and first saw the shores of freedom in the United States of America. It's been an inspiration for millions of people. But it was a gift. It wasn't even meant for the people that paid for it and created it and produced it. It was, it was built to be given away. In fact, one immigrant who saw the Statue of Liberty as he was coming into to our country for the very first time said these words. He said, always that statue was on my mind. I would think of Lady Liberty and I, I would ask God every day to make me worthy of the ideals that she stood for. See, as commissioned art, the Statue of Liberty was designed to be given away so that it could be an inspiration to millions of people. Listen, friends, here's, here's what I'm getting at. You have been commissioned by God to give yourself away for the inspiration of other people. 
Your life daily, hourly, moment by moment is meant to be... uh, is meant to breathe inspiration, meant to bring value to other people. And here's what I know about you, even though I may not know you, because I just this is a universal experience. If you're really God's masterpiece, and you're really to walk out your salvation in a way that you're doing good works, and let's be very clear about what good works are. A good work is anything that brings value to someone else. A good, a good work is anything that is a kindness to another human being. A good work is always aimed at humanity. It's always aimed at other people. And every time, and, and because God predestined you to do those kinds of works, he's going to tap you on the shoulder throughout the course of your ordinary life, probably every day through a prompting, and he's going to ask you to do something. And I know what you feel in that moment when God asks you to do those things, uh, to, to do those good works. It's going to be one of two things. It's either going to be fear, oh, well, if I do that, they'll think this, or if I do that, they're going to think I'm crazy, or if I, whatever, right? The other thing is, you're going to feel inadequate. So listen, I went to Dallas Seminary years and years ago. I have a master's degree in theology. I've been in ministry for 30 years. I'm not telling you that to brag. I'm telling you that when, that there are still days where I don't feel adequate. And here's the good news, and this is good news. The fact that you don't feel adequate in that moment is terrific news, Because you will press into Jesus in that moment and you will draw from his strength and his power. And this is the whole message of Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10. That you are adequate. God has made you adequate. You are sons, you are daughters, you are chosen, you are royalty. You are seated with Christ. You possess his power. You are sealed with the Spirit. You may not feel adequate in a moment, but just step out in a moment of trust and faith and acknowledgement that what God's word says about you is true, even though it's not, it doesn't describe accurately how you feel in a given moment. Friends, there's a huge difference between faith and feelings. So when I was in school, here's the way Bill Bright used to articulate this. He would say that faith is the engine of the train and the feelings are the caboose. In other words, you arrive at the feelings because you step out in faith. But if you try to make your feelings the locomotive and your faith the caboose, You'll live frustrated and in futility all of your life. You'll never feel smart enough, good enough, strong enough, together enough, disciplined enough, whatever enough is important to you. You'll never feel it. And you may not know how to do the miraculous, but you know how to pick up a phone. You know how to write a note. You know how to give to a need. You know how to have an encouraging conversation. You know how to initiate a friendship. You know how to step into a need. You know how to sign up for a ministry. You know how to do all those things. And that, friends, is the road to good works. As a saved man or woman who is grateful to God. So let me just ask you a question, and then we're going to, I'm going to go ahead and ask our team to come up as we think about 
uh, closing down. But here's this, just this. Whether you're at home or whether you're in the room, would you be willing to get out of your comfort zone and step into the good works that God has prepared in advance for you to do? And here's the, here's the first step. Listen, you'll never do the good works that God has, has predestined for you to do if you're sitting in a chair. It doesn't matter if you're sitting in a chair in your living room or you're just sitting in a chair in this room. To do that, you got to get up. To do that, you got to do something. To do that, you got to sign up. To do that, you got to show up. To do that, you got to be up. To do that, you got to be constantly looking around you for opportunities to serve. Because remember, it was Jesus himself who said, hey, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for others. And that's what Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 is all about. Friends, our God didn't just do something to get you saved, to get you into heaven. He did everything. Your salvation and my salvation is completely His. It's His glory, right? It's His grace. It's His mercy. It's His kindness. So will you just reflect that this week? I mean, anybody you lock eyes with, just reflect His mercy, His kindness, His love. Because I tell you, friends, in this world, those three qualities are lacking, but we, we can be different. We can bring light into a dark world. We can be God's mercy, kindness, and love. You go, well, how do, how do you do that? Well, you just drink in his. You drink in his mercy, his kindness, his grace. And as you drink it in, <laughs> it's kind of a crude example, but you'll, you'll vomit it out, right? I mean, what goes in comes out every day, all the time. What goes in comes out. So listen, if God's grace is going in, if God's mercy is coming in, if God's kindness is coming in, it's going to come out. It's just the way the world works. It's the way our bodies work. So will you? Will you intentionally be focused or refocus on your relationship with Jesus, his mercy, his kindness, his grace? Let me pray for you, and then we're going to take communion together as a response of worship. I'll walk you through that. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love, your grace, your mercy. You are the Lord. There's none like you. You acted, you moved, you saved, you restored, you reformed, you chose, you sealed, you did it all. And we're grateful in our acknowledgement of that this morning. And so, God, as we take communion together, help us do it remindful of who we used to be and what you've done on our behalf. You didn't just give us a push. You changed the game. You changed the rules. You acted. You moved. And we give you thanks and praise for that, and we do that in the mighty name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. Hey, so in the book of 1 Corinthians, Jesus is enjoying a meal with his disciples and he holds up a cup and he says, this blood is the covenant poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink from this cup, I want you to remember my blood poured out and shed for you. Then he picked up a piece of bread and he said, and every time you, uh, you eat from this bread, that's an act of remembrance too. I want you to remember my body offered up for you, my body broken for you. So once a month here at SCC, we take the opportunity 
to remember Jesus by drinking from the cup and by eating from the bread. And today of all days, we should, we should just be in awe and wonder at the lengths that our Savior has gone to offer to you and me the forgiveness of sin, to offer us the opportunity to walk as royalty. Incredible. Only our God does that. But in order to experience that, you've got to live that out. So here's what I'm going to do. Here's the way we take it here. So you're going to notice uh, two stations up front, two stations in the back. Um, you can, uh, in a moment, I'm going to release us. Um, we're going to pretend that this is an altar here. And you're going to come, and we're going to serve you at any of the stations. And then you can either go back to your seat, or you can come to the altar and you can take communion here as a family together or as an individual. But really just an opportunity to kneel together here at the cross, whatever you want to do. And then we're not going to prompt you, but just in your own, you know, after you've kind of prayed and thought about what the shed blood of Jesus means, what his body offered up for you really means, you drink that cup as you're ruminating on that. You eat the bread and you remember his body and you just thank him. You just thank Him. So let me pray for us as we take communion together. Heavenly Father, help us remember well. Help us fix our eyes on you this morning, Lord Jesus, in these next few moments, even as you have fixed your eyes on us. We remember together the lengths that you've gone. We remember together today that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that we followed the ways of this world, that we followed the ruler of this world, that we were by nature objects of, of wrath, but you made us objects of mercy. You made us alive with Christ. You seated us in the heavenly realms. You poured out your grace, your mercy, and your kindness upon us. And so we thank you for the cross. We thank you for your love. And we can, all we can do today is simply receive that and open ourselves up to it. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. And so now come and receive. The altar is open.